accurate blue-collar theology to shield the mind, body, and spirit. This is Full Armor Radio. Hello, welcome. Thanks for tuning in to Full Armor Radio. I am your host, Brandon Lockridge. And today, in this episode, I wanted to continue our discussion about confessions and catechisms. Now, today I'm not going to say a whole lot about confessions and catechisms specifically. I will a little bit at the end. But today, uh, I want to do a little bit of a history lesson. So the confession that we're going to start with in this series is going to be the Belgic Confession. And I thought today would be uh, a good episode to talk a little bit about the history of the Belgic Confession. Where did it come from? How did it come to be? And so um, what I'm going to do today is go through, although it's going to be a brief history, it uh, there is a lot of material. And so I'm going to get going pretty quickly. Now, the Belgic Confession came into existence in 1561. But we're going to start a bit earlier and talk uh, and go back into the early 1500s and uh, and work our way through. So uh, to start in 1516, Charles V began to rule as king of Spain. In 1519, he became king of Germany, king of Italy and the Holy Roman Emperor. Um uh, pope Leo X was Pope of the Roman Catholic Church at the time. Now, there's sort of this question of what is the difference between Pope and Holy Roman Emperor? Well, um, during the this time, Rome wasn't just a church, but it actually had temporal military power as well. Uh, it was its own ruling empire. So the simplest way to put it uh, really was that the Pope was the was in charge of all matters spiritual, and the Holy Roman Emperor was in charge of all matters temporal. So when it came to military operations and conquest, that was the job of the Holy Roman Emperor. Uh, Now, Charles V is the same Holy Roman Emperor that declared Martin Luther an outlaw in 1521 at the Diet of Worms. So in 1522, Charles V introduced the Inquisition to provinces in uh, the Netherlands uh, as, a, as a way of purging the Netherlands of anti-Roman Catholic sentiment. The persecution during the Inquisition became so intense that eventually Charles decreed that one was to be executed if they housed a heretic uh, if they even failed to report a heretic, or even more so if they spoke a good word about a heretic. Um, In fact, even if they really discussed the Christian faith at all, they were to be executed. I mean, this is some pretty intense stuff. Uh, In 1556, so we're fast forwarding a bit, about 30 some odd years, uh, Philip II, who was the son of Charles V, took over as King of Spain, and he was given dominion over the Netherlands. So he turned up the heat on the persecution of Christians during his reign, and I'll spare you some of the persecution stories because it's really quite horrifying um, 
However, there's good news. The gospel continued to flourish in the Netherlands during this persecution. You could say that the Spirit of God was burning through the Netherlands like a wildfire. So, um, I give you sort of some quick historical background leading leading up to the Belgic Confession in order to say basically that this was the world from which the Belgic Confession and its author came. Okay, so who is the author of the Belgic Confession? It was a gentleman named Guy de Bray. Guy de Bray. Now, de Bray was born in 1522, so about the same uh, year that Charles V was introducing the, the Inquisition into the provinces of, of the Netherlands. Um, he was born in 15, 1522 in Mons, uh, which is in the Aino province. And I apologize, I could be butchering some of these names of these uh, provinces and, and cities and whatnot. Um, but uh, Mons was in the Aino province of southern Belgium. His parents were very devout Roman Catholics. Um, in the letters Debray wrote in his later years, he often described himself as being uh, an unbeliever and blind before his Protestant conversion. He also described his family as unbelievers and image worshipers and, you know, if they're devout Roman Catholics, we can understand why he would say that. In the early 1540s, John Calvin sent preachers from Geneva into the French-speaking southern Netherlands, and that's where Debray heard these preachers. Sometime during these years, Debray was converted to Protestant Christianity. Um, up to 1547, the Reformed churches in the Southern Netherlands had been mostly underground. Uh, however, the word finally got out about these Christians and heavy persecution began. In 1548, close to a year later, de Bray left his hometown in Mons and went to London. London was very friendly during this time to the Protestants, and Bray was able to stay there in London for about four years. He joined a local French-speaking Dutch refugee congregation, and during his time in London, he met a number of Dutch Reformed theological giants, and he also began his training to become a preacher of the gospel for the Reformed churches. Uh, then in 1552, de Bray went back to the southern Netherlands to preach the gospel. Unfortunately, the persecution was still very real there in the Netherlands, so he was forced to do his work in secret as a traveling preacher, and he did this for uh, about four years, from, from 1552 to 1556. Uh, then in 1556, because of the intense persecution, Bray was forced to flee to the uh, he was, he forced to flee the southern Netherlands again, and and this time he went to Frankfurt, Germany. Uh, Frankfurt was a Protestant city, so he found safety there, and he, he joined uh, the one and only Dutch refugee congregation in the city. And then that same year, 1556, John Calvin came and he visited that church. And that's where Debray first met John Calvin. 
after that, Debray made his way to Geneva, Switzerland, where he studied under John Calvin and Calvin's protege, Theodore Beza. Debray had a great love and affection for Calvin. He considered him to be a spiritual father of sorts. Debray then stayed in Geneva for three years. And obviously, as we can see, <laughs> uh, this is the pattern with Debray. He, he moves on after that. Uh, Debray is not, uh, not a guy who, who stayed put <laughs> for, for very long, anywhere from, you know, three to four years. And, you know, he'd stay in a place and, and after that he was out. <laughs> so, uh, he, uh, after that, he, after he left Geneva, he got married and he, uh, or right around that time, uh, he got married and he had headed back to the Netherlands, uh, to the town of Tournay, Tournay. And he ministered there for almost three years, as you can see. <laughs> Again, just like the last time he was in the Netherlands, uh, he had to minister in secret um, because of the intense persecution that was taking place. Um, so during this time, it was kind of interesting uh, ministers would go to these dinner parties. And these dinner parties consisted of maybe six to 12 people, and they would preach the gospel at these dinner parties. And so this is what Debray did. And so he would go from house to house to these dinner parties, and he would preach God's word. Uh, Something that's kind of fascinating is uh, the persecution, I guess, was so extreme for those who proclaimed the gospel that Debray refrained from giving people his real name at these dinner parties. So most of the congregation members referred to him as Jerome uh, because they didn't actually know his real name. Um, I, In the studying I did, I did not find out you know, how that name came to be, if that was just the name that uh, congregation members gave him or if he was giving out that name or, or what. I'm not really sure. But um, that's what they were calling him at that time. Okay, so um, up to this point, obviously, Debray has done a lot in his life, but his real magnum opus comes during this three-year period in Tournay. Um, During this time is when he began collecting various confessions of faith that all the Protestants had agreed upon, and he wrote his first draft of the Belgic Confession. Now, um, the question arises, okay, so the Belgic Confession is written by just one author, one guy uh, who puts together this confession. I mean, can we trust him? Well, um, although Debray was the original author, the Belgic Confession was heavily based upon John Calvin's French Confession. Also, on top of that, the confession was proofread by at least three of Debray's minister friends, and it was edited at two separate synods, the Synod of Antwerp in 1566 and the Synod of Dort in 1619. And for anyone that might not know, synods were assemblies of the Dutch Reformed churches. Um. Additionally, after the Synod, the Synod of Antwerp in 1566, the Genevan Fathers, whom 
were all associated with John Calvin, approved the Belgic Confession for mass distribution throughout the Netherlands. So again, although de Bray was technically the sole author, the Belgic Confession was heavily vetted by many, many others. So, um, so after so this was in 1561 when de Bray writes his first draft of the Belgic Confession. Um, and, uh, and after that, he went on the run, basically. He couldn't stay put anymore for any length of time because so many sought to kill him. He basically, he basically became like Harrison Ford in The Fugitive. He was just on the go, man. Couldn't hang around anywhere. So, um, But he went on to minister in many different areas as discreetly as he could. And as a result of his efforts and efforts of many other faithful gospel preachers, the Reformed Protestant faith grew greatly throughout the Netherlands. Um, so now, in get to... a. Uh, about a year after the Synod of Antwerp in March of 1567, Debray was finally captured at the Siege of, oh boy, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to butcher this one, okay? Siege of Valenciana, Valenciana? <laughs> the Siege of Valenciana, uh, where King Philip, remember, the son of, um, of Charles V, had sent soldiers to this siege uh, to imprison the Protestant heretics, quote-unquote heretics, as he called them, uh, that had been publicly denouncing the Roman Catholic Church in the streets, right? Or actually, in the streets, denouncing the Roman Catholic Church. I think they were, uh, you know, destroying uh, uh, statues of, of saints, and, you know, because they're saying these are idols and starting fires and things. And so, um, there was quite a bit of, uh, chaos going on. And so, um, so Debray is captured roughly two and two and a half months later, uh, on May 31st of 1567, Debray was hung in the public marketplace in front of city hall for having quote, acted contrary to the command of the regent and having celebrated the Lord's Supper against his order. This was the charge against him. Um, now, before being led out to death, uh, it's reported that he said to some of the other prisoners that were there with him, quote, My brothers, I am condemned to death today for the doctrine of the Son of God. Praise be to him. I would have never thought that God would have given me such an honor. Amazing words. Now, what's interesting is that there's, it's, this is not just the, there, there's so many similar stories of, of, of martyrs throughout history, right? I mean, we look at, we can look at many martyrs like Polycarp even, I think of Polycarp and his story and his martyrdom and, there's so many others, uh, William Tyndale, right? Uh, there's these. There's there's countless stories of of Christian men and women uh, that w- that died for the sake of the gospel, right? And the reason being because right doctrine mattered to these godly men and women, and it wasn't doctrine for doctrine's sake, but only that doctrine 
which agreed with the word of God, because nothing mattered more than the word of God. And the word of God rightly taught is what these martyrs fought and died for. Um, you know, we're, we're often enamored with the lives and work of men like John Calvin, Martin Luther, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Spurgeon, and the like. And even with modern day men of God, men like R.C. Sproul, <laughs> Alistair Begg, John MacArthur, right? All good men. And we know that these faithful men earnestly contend for the faith, and we thank God for them. But most of us don't know the faithful men and women like Debray who literally died for the sake of the gospel. There are so many whose names we will never know that gave their lives for the gospel. And I'm not suggesting that these other faithful men wouldn't have. I believe they would. But my point in saying this is something that I remember John MacArthur saying at a at a conference that I went to. You know, he said, people sit in church week in and week out with their Bibles in their laps without even realizing that the word of God has sailed down to them on a sea of blood. And that's the truth. And the reason for that is because men, faithful men, faithful women cared about doctrine. They contended earnestly for the faith because they feared God more than they feared man. They wanted to know the God who is, and they wanted others to know him too. So when we look at studying confessions and catechisms, kind of going back to that now, you know, full circle uh, in the series of studying confessions and catechism, the goal of studying these documents and biblical doctrine more broadly is to know more deeply the God who is and to know who we are in light of who God is. Now, I want to make sure I'm clear in saying that a confession or a catechism is only as good as the biblical doctrine it espouses, right? These doctrines are written by people, and people are fallible. Therefore, confessions and catechisms are fallible, okay? Um, you know, a confession is, is only considered to be a good confession as long as it faithfully represents the infallible word of God. And good confessions are useful for learning doctrine and aiding us in combating heresy, right? And there are all kinds of heresies out there in the world, and much of them are very subtle. Now, spiritual enlightenment often has times of hills and valleys throughout history, um, in the time of the Reformation, they had just come out of a valley and they were standing on a hill because the gospel was spreading like wildfire. And I believe today in Middle Eastern and Eastern countries, this is happening. But in the West, in Western culture, I believe we are in a valley. Uh, the popular religion of the West today is secularism. Now, having said that, I believe in the victoriousness of the gospel. I do believe many hearts will be turned to God and to his son, Jesus Christ. But Christians have a responsibility in all of this. When the time comes to stand up and fight for sound theology, when the time comes to contend earnestly for the faith, as it says in Jude, 
will we be prepared to do so? I believe we will be if we remain faithful to sound biblical doctrine as it is taught, first and foremost in God's Word, and secondarily through biblically sound confessions and catechisms. All right, well, that's going to do it for this episode. Appreciate everyone tuning in and your continued support, and we'll catch you here next time on Full Armor Radio. Thank you.